This is the EWN Podcast Network. Are you ready to live your life by your rules? Need some inspiration? Welcome to First Class Life, Redefining Success, the podcast that brings you interviews with people who have had their life path challenged and have redefined what success and a first-class life really means to them with tales of roads taken, detours explored, turning points, and transformation. Here is your host, First Class Life mentor, Kate Fessler. Welcome to First Class Life, Redefining Success. I'm your host, Kate Fessler, and today my guest is John Rex. As a former CFO of multi-billion dollar consumer healthcare and technology businesses, including major divisions of Microsoft, Novartis, and Kodak, John Rex brings real-world perspective to his clients' leadership challenges. He understands the intensity of leading complex businesses because he's done it himself. As a leadership consultant and executive coach, his mission is to empower teams and individuals to realize their potential by tapping their deepest strengths and learning to live more mindfully. During 25 years in executive leadership roles leading hundreds of professionals around the globe, John cultivated a passion for coaching and developing high-performing individuals and teams. He became known as the leader who put people first and consistently built powerful people-centered organizations. At Microsoft, he led several multi-year cultural transformational initiatives for over 1,100 employees worldwide. Business Impact equipped finance professionals with the tools to identify and assertively advocate for game-changing growth and cost measures, dramatically enhancing their reputations as trusted advisors. My Life empowered them to make choices at work and home that meaningfully improved their sense of well-being and increased their effectiveness on the job. John is known for his authenticity, courage, and energy in coaching individuals and teams to maximize their potential. Having lived in Latin America for 12 years, he's fluent in Spanish and holds a special appreciation for diverse perspectives. That makes him an inclusive leader who draws on the uniqueness of individuals to increase the power of teams. He loves to transform what is strong into what is superb. A sense of adventure is at the heart of John's zest for life. He relishes exploring new ideas, places, and cultures. Family, spirituality, and community are central to his way of living. Whenever he gets the chance, he escapes into nature, where he loves to cycle, backpack, ski, scuba dive, and soak in the beauty of this earth. John holds an international MBA from the Thunderbird School of Global Management. Selected clients include Amazon, Gainsight, Microsoft, Oracle, Paraveda Solutions, and Simplicity Consulting. Welcome, John. Thank you, Kate. Happy to be here. Let's go back to when you were a kid. What did you want to be when you grew up? Oh, wow. That's a great question. And huh, I was thinking about this the other day, actually, because if I go way back, like the second grade, I wanted to be of all things, a soldier. That never really got any traction. But what I, what I ended up being really focused on for many years was psychology. I, I wanted to be a psychologist. I was just always intrigued by why people do the things they do, why they behave the way they do, and why our, why our minds work the way they work. And I had a, a fascination with dreams for a while, too, and wrote some research papers on that. Um, so I wanted to be a psychologist and then I had, uh, kind of a, a traumatic experience, I suppose. When I was 12 years old, our family went bankrupt and we, we lost everything. We lost our house. We lost our cars. Um, we ended up, um, 
kind of just almost living on the streets for a while. Lived in a motel for a time. And um, that, was, uh, that was a transformational experience for me. And I really got the idea in my head that I wanted to be able to provide security for my family when I grew up, when I had a family someday. Mm-hmm. And so I got hyper-focused on uh, trying to discover a career that could provide that kind of security. And uh, I got it in my head that I was going to be a lawyer. Wow. <laughs> yeah. And because uh, the, the only thing I knew about lawyers was they were rich. Uh, they had lots of money. And, and at, as a teenager going through that experience, that, that's kind of what mattered to me at that point was figuring out how to provide my family with financial security. So I wanted to be a psychologist when I was a kid, and then it morphed into wanting to be an attorney. I, I didn't end up being either one of those, and that's kind of a story in itself. Yeah, so what, how, what, how did you end up as a chief financial officer? You obviously weren't sort of attracted to numbers early in your life, except for this uh, experience with kind of losing everything. How did yeah. you end up there? Yeah, it was, it was kind of the stereotypical, um, you know, story of falling into something. And what happened was I, um, you know, I, I, was, I had this plan to become a lawyer, and that's what I thought I wanted to do. And I had, um, I had worked outside of the country for a couple of years as a missionary when I was 19. And I got really intrigued with the idea of working abroad and I was attracted to foreign cultures and places and foods. And that kind of led me to the idea of getting an international business degree. Um, and I, uh, so I went off and I got an international MBA and I thought I was going to do marketing. In fact, I wanted to stay away from numbers as much as I possibly could. I, I really didn't think of myself as good with numbers. I didn't enjoy them. And, and I was actually pretty bad at math, to be honest with you. Um, and, and I ended up doing pretty good in MBA school, even though my undergraduate degrees were in English and Spanish, like maybe the worst possible preparation you could have for an MBA, uh, other than the fact that those, those majors really taught me how to think and organize my mind and communicate. Uh, but I got hired by Eastman Kodak Company in the late 80s, and they wanted me to work in their Latin America division. I was thrilled with that idea uh, because it was kind of a chance to, to go back to Latin America. I had, I had lived in Colombia when I was a little boy. There's a story there, too. Um, and I had been a missionary in Argentina. And so uh, this, this opportunity to work for Latin America was like a dream come true. And um, my young wife and I, I think we were 25 and 26 at the time, uh, took this job in Rochester, New York, and, and uh, kind of got onboarded to the company and rotated through some marketing and finance assignments. And I was honestly absolutely terrified of having to do a finance assignment. I thought, oh, I'm going to get discovered. They're going to find out that I have no facility with numbers whatsoever, and they're going to boot me out of the company. And um, I think it was my second assignment. There were six-month rotations. My second assignment was as a financial analyst. And it was kind of a strange thing. I I discovered that financial statements told stories. And that resonated to kind of the liberal artsy guy in me. And 
and I and I realized, wow, this is actually kind of neat. These financial statements tell the stories of of the company and its performance and its its customers and all these kinds of things. And I just kind of was taken by it. And I also realized that I had a bit of a knack for just putting order on chaos and and um, and organizing things and and so forth. And I, I, you know, in the finance world, I guess that's helpful. But in any case, I still wasn't convinced that my career would be in in finance. But what happened is at the end of those two years, I was kind of voluntold that I would be going to Brazil um, and I would be training financial analysts for Kodak in, in Brazil. And that was like anathema to me because I spoke Spanish, not Portuguese. Mm. And, I, and I thought of myself as a marketing guy, not a finance guy. But anyway, it was kind of a situation, especially maybe in that time and place where you couldn't say no. And off we went to Brazil uh, with two little kids in tow by then, three and four years old. And, uh, and, and it was my job to train these financial analysts. And I wasn't very well prepared to do it, but I was a bit resourceful. And I, and I found a professor from a local university, brought him in. He helped me train uh, these financial analysts, train myself too. And I actually became pretty competent at that over about a, a two-year period. But I suppose my resourcefulness and, and maybe my leadership capability caught the attention of management at the company. And uh, one day I got a phone call from the CFO of Latin America and he said, I want to offer you a Latin America Kodak. And he said, I want to offer you a job to be CFO of our operations in Chile. Yeah. And I said, well, I'm not really a finance guy. <laughs> said, well, you look like one to me. You're doing a fine job. Um, and I uh, says, I have confidence that you can do it. Uh, and I just felt like, wow, I, I can't say no. I mean, this is a really unique opportunity. I know it'll stretch me. I know it'll push me. But if I say no, I'll always wonder, could I have done it? Yeah. And so I talked with my wife, Marianne, and he said, okay, why not? And, and, you know, we were young and adventurous. I think I was 28 or 29 by then. And so off we went to Chile. And by this time we had three kids because another child was born in Brazil. Uh, we went to Chile and what I discovered was I was competent at finance. I was decent at finance, but what I was really good at was energizing teams, um, laying out a vision and a, uh, an idea of what could be possible and attracting really good talent and, and creating a culture and, and where people could thrive and do their best work. And, and I would mentor them and coach them. And, and I got, I got really kind of fascinated for a time with um, sort of the quality initiatives of the 1990s and uh, improving business processes and things like that. So anyway, I, I ended up running really a very good finance organization and, and turning it around in, in Chile. And um, to make a long story short, that just, that, that kind of success ended up being um, uh, kind of a vortex that I got sucked into uh, because the next thing I knew I was offered another CFO job and another one. And, and um, so I ended up being CFO of, of, of Kodak Latin America later for the Americas. Then I was headhunted away 
and went to work for Novartis and I was a global CFO of their eye care company, Siva Vision, for a number of years. Uh, and by then I'd kind of made a reputation for myself as a CFO who uh, turned things around. Mm. Uh, would turn around organizations, underperforming organizations, and really transform them into something effective. And, uh, and that's when Microsoft headhunted me and, and I became uh, CFO of, of Microsoft North America. And I, I'll, I'll just interject there after, after 16 interviews. That was probably the most rigorous interviewing process I'd ever been through. Uh, and, uh, and I ended up serving as, as CFO for Microsoft uh, North America operations uh, for, for about seven years. Mm. Well, you know, I live in the Pacific Northwest and near Microsoft, and we are currently grieving Mr. Paul Allen, who just passed oh. away a couple of days ago, which was yes, that's right. very sad for our community. Uh, yeah, did you absolutely. ever meet him? I never did meet Paul. By the time I joined the company in 2006, he was he was not there anymore. I overlapped with Bill. I always get asked, did you know Bill Gates? Did you work with Bill Gates? And the short answer is I, I did for a very short time because uh, I think we only overlapped like 16 months or something like that, and, and he retired. And, and it's not like I worked with him on a daily basis, but I, I, did, uh, I did get to know him. So... Being a CEO wasn't really your goal, but it seemed to be sort of like opportunities just kept opening up for you. When did you sit back and say, you know what? I don't know if this is really what I want to do with my life. Yeah. You know, it's, it's interesting because I had that sensation really quite early on. I mean, even in the days when I was in Chile, I felt like, oh, this work that I'm doing, it's like a temporary gig. They've asked me to be a CFO for, you know, for this particular need, and I'll, I'll give it my all, I'll do my best, but this isn't my real career. And, um, and, I, and I honestly thought in those days that my real career was, was going to be marketing. And, and, um, but as each, as, as each new opportunity came along, what I discovered was that I really relished a challenge. And I think that that is what pulled me along and, and enticed me to take on bigger and bigger CFO roles. But I remember multiple times talking with Marianne and saying, I'm not a finance guy. <laughs> I'm not a finance guy. And, uh, and I said, you know what I'd really love to do? I, I just love to teach people, to coach them. And um, I remember like hiring some leadership consultants to come in and, and do work for me uh, at, at Novartis and, and then later at, um, at Microsoft and sitting across the table from them and thinking, I want to be you when I grow up. That, I want to do what you do. Mm. And, and so there was this nagging Oh, there was this nagging desire that would come back to me on like this periodic basis and it wouldn't go away. And, and I brought it up with Marianne a time or two and she was like, John, listen, we have four kids in, uh, in high school about to go to college. You're doing just fine as a CFO. Keep your <laughs> right. nose to the grindstone buster and just keep doing what you're doing. So the, the timing wasn't quite right. And, it, you know, it was a risky, it was a risky idea to just 
ditch a successful corporate finance career and, and go off and do something else. Yeah, absolutely. Um, by the same token, it just wouldn't go away. When I say it, I mean this nagging feeling that I wasn't really following, um, following a career path that truly took advantage of my passions, my skills, my talents. I was making a lot of money, and at a certain point, that was my objective. It was like, take my talents, make the most money I can with them. And as opposed to take my talents and put them to their best use, mm -hmm. which are two different things. And, um, and I was actually choiceful about that early in my, in my career because I, I, was, I was very focused on, on creating security for our family. But at a certain point, I just, I just couldn't really uh, stay comfortable with the tension any longer. And uh, that really came to a head just a few years ago. And if you like, I, I can tell you sort of what kicked me in the pants and, and what was the tipping point. Well, I know that you had a bit of a health crisis. I did. Yeah. Yeah. yeah I, tell I, me about that. Was, it, was that the tipping point or was that sort of the emphasis on the tipping point? Yeah. If, you know, if, if, I, was, if I was teetering on the edge, which I was, uh, the health event was was absolutely the, the the kick in the pants, as I put it a moment ago. But what what had happened was I had left Microsoft and become CFO of a startup drone company in the Bay Area, very hot, uh, highly very highly well funded uh, tech startup, and then we just got uh, killed by the Chinese. The Chinese. Um, just trounced us with better te technology. And um, af after I'd been their CFO for about two years, and I went to the CEO and I said, you know, the way things are going, you really can't afford me anymore. And so we agreed on that. And I left that company. And we were, as I say, we were living in the San Francisco Bay Area at the time. And I was spending a lot of time on my bicycle uh, cycling uh, around the, the Oakland Hills and the Berkeley Hills in that area. Gorgeous, gorgeous, gorgeous country. And just contemplating, like, what do I want to do next? Do I want to continue uh, as a CFO? Or is this kind of a unique opportunity to do something different? Mm -hmm. And I was putting in 60, 100 miles a week on my bike and, I saw, and just thinking. Um, and... Uh, Right about at that time, I, 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 I was, it was like I was convincing myself, or, or better said, I was mustering up the courage uh, to make a career change, but I wasn't quite there. It was like the fear of a change, the fear of letting go of something that even if I didn't love it, I knew, mm -hmm. and I knew well, and I knew how to do it. Um, that, that fear was keeping me from making the leap. Um, and then over about a 10 day period, and this is, this is what leads to the health event story. It, it ends up with a happy ending, although it sounds kind of scary, but what happened is, uh, over about a 10 day period, I just started feeling weaker, which was totally strange because I knew I was in good shape. I was, you know, I was cycling all these miles all through the hills and everything, 
but I started to feel weaker and I'd climb the stairs at our house in uh, Orinda, California. I'd get to the top of the stairs and I was out of breath. Mm. I thought, how can this be? So I called my doctor one day and he said, look, some, something is not right. I want you to go to the emergency room. This was on a Sunday. And I said, okay. So I went to the emergency room. I told them that I had you know, some pressure in my chest and I was feeling weak. They thought I was having a heart attack. Yeah. So they rushed me right in past all the other patients who had been there waiting for a while. And uh, ran tests. I, did, I wasn't having a heart attack. So then they were perplexed. They did an MRI on my chest and discovered that um, both my lungs were filled with blood clots. Wow. So I had massive bilateral pulmonary embolism. I'd never even heard those words before that moment. Um, but um, I, was, I was on the brink of death and didn't even know it. Uh, I, I remember when the doctor came back to give me and, and my wife the results. He was just white as a ghost. Uh, and he said, look, you, you've got you know, massive bilateral pulmonary embolism and you've got some blood clots in your lungs. And I said, well, like how many? Yeah. And he said, no, you don't understand. We, we is that the them. finance guy? Like, how many? <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> how many? I'm thinking like, two or three, just get those out of there. <laughs> and so he explained to me, no, you're, like your lungs are saturated and this is lethal. Wow. Said, you know, if we don't treat you, you will be dead by tomorrow. And oh, my goodness. Yeah, that that got my attention. And, uh, so I spent the next five days in the ICU. They, they convened like this team of doctors to determine if I could survive a particular treatment for pulmonary embolism. It's, it's using a drug called TPA. It's a pretty aggressive treatment. I don't really know the specifics or science behind it, but I know I had to get approved for that treatment. And, and so they did that. They ran tubes up through the arteries in my legs up into my lungs and then, uh, and then broke up the blood clots and then my system uh, flushed out the, the, the tiny particles. And that surviving that just wiped me out physically and emotionally. And as I lay in the hospital the next few days in the ICU and part, the worst part of it in, in some ways was I couldn't move because I had so many tubes in me and everything. I was just like laying there. Um, and it, it really was a catalytic moment for me because I realized, uh, you know, it's kind of obvious, I suppose, but I realized just how fragile life is and how important it is to live in a purposeful way. Mm. And while I was quite... Uh, satisfied or feeling good about my personal, my private life, I really knew that I was not fulfilling my purpose or my calling, whatever you want to name it, uh, on the professional side of the equation. And, uh, and that was what finally gave me the courage, the determination um, to, uh, to make the leap. And so uh, <laughs> I, uh, I, when I got out of the hospital, I just, um, I put my nose to figuring out how do I make this career change? Uh, because what I just, what I had decided was I want to be an executive coach. I want to be a leadership consultant. 
And there's no roadmap for doing that. It's not like, oh, I decide I want to be a dentist. And so <laughs> just go, I got to go to dental school or something, right? All right. Um, this is not like that. And there, there, there's really no cookie cutter way, uh, like a checklist that you can go through that says, okay, you're now uh, prepared to, to do this. Um, and so it, it was really kind of a process of talking to others in the field and learning their stories and uh, getting a bunch of certifications, getting my uh, coaching certificate and, and things like that. And then rebranding myself, telling people, hey, I'm an executive coach now, hire me, basically, um, yeah. which was kind of kind of weird and, and a little bit scary, but um, uh, I, I'm happy to report it's, it's gone really well. The first year was terrible, but because um, I, I had to rebrand myself and convince people that I wasn't a CFO anymore. And, uh, and, and, and there, there, there was uh, a very scary time. It, it probably only lasted about, I don't know, six weeks when I was still getting calls from headhunters for CFO jobs. Mm-hmm. And, um, and, and it was really hard to tell them, especially the first one, that I wasn't entertaining CFO opportunities anymore. Yeah. That was, that was a very difficult thing to do because I knew it, I was like burning the boats. Mm-hmm. I was burning the boats. Like once you put the word out that you're not, you know, you're not a CFO anymore or you're not a, I don't know, name your profession, right? You're not that anymore. People take you at your word and there's kind of no turning back. Uh, And, um, but after I had a few of those phone calls, in a weird kind of way, sort of uh, turbocharged me. Like, okay, I burned the boats. (laughs) Full speed ahead. I just got to go now, baby. Yeah. Well, it's liberating, right? Because it's like, okay, I've shed this identity and now I'm creating a new one. Yeah. Yeah, that's exactly right. So your wife had been sort of on the fence about you changing careers earlier after the health scare and after you kind of said, you know what, now's the time. Was she supportive? That's a, that's a stupendous question uh, because we had a very, we had a very important and heartfelt conversation in the ICU about this topic. And, you know, that first night that I was in the ICU and she, she told me this after the fact, she drove home alone that night, you know, one or two o'clock in the morning, left me in the ICU and, and honestly didn't know if I was going to survive the night, if, if you know, w- what was going to happen. And she felt very alone and, and, and afraid. Um, and in the next, over the next couple of days, of course, they saved my life. And I, I don't say that lightly. I say it very gratefully. Uh, and we, we were able to talk together about what really mattered to us. And, and I say us, not just me. And, um, and she was at a place where she could step into, in an authentic way, she could step into supporting me 
in my desire to make a career change. I, I think it, I think it was helped by a number of things. One was by then our kids were out of the nest. Um, they were mostly through college. Um, you know, we had built a, a good enough nest egg that uh, didn't feel too terribly ter- uh, terrifying uh, to make, to make a leap. We had some cushion to be able to do that. But I think she also had, as I had a realization that, you only get to live once, and, it, and it's important to live it in a way that um, that feels honest and integral. Mm-hmm. Well, some people would say that you got to live twice because you survived what could have been a, a fatal condition and got a second chance. That's right. No, you're, you're absolutely right. And again, I, I don't take that lightly at, at all. Uh, not, not at all. And, um, and I'm grateful for it. I'm grateful that that experience gave me insight and courage that I needed to make the leap. So you had been thinking, so this took your whole psychology interest and all of that and packaged it up with your business experience and really took your life experience and put it into a new career for you. What was the hardest thing about shedding that old identity and stepping into the new one? Yeah, you know, it wasn't, it wasn't that hard for me. I think it was much harder for others. Hmm. I, I think in, in my own case, so I'll explain myself. I, I think in my, in my case, I had been gradually but consistently preparing myself mentally and emotionally to conceive of myself in a different way for many years. And that includes, you know, during the years that I was a CFO, I was always a little bit of, a, of an odd duck CFO because I was the guy who, I was extroverted, I was communicative, um, I loved mentoring and coaching people. And you're um, not loved, a finance guy. <laughs> yeah, I wasn't a finance guy. <laughs> I loved doing town halls, you know, all, all of that kind of thing. And, and I realized that in many ways I had begun to explore my new career while I was still in my, in my old career. Um, and that might be a topic we come back to later on because I have more, more thoughts to share on that. But, um, so, you know, the, the mind shift for me was, e- even though it required a catalyst in, in many ways, it had, the wheels had been in motion for a long time and, um, and it was sort of inevitable, I think that I was going to get there, uh, particularly in retrospect, I realize that now that said, uh, th- there were the people around me had a much more difficult time, hmm. uh, including my family, uh, my, you know, my friends, uh, business colleagues, uh, y- you know, because uh, they had known me as a CFO for so long. And that was sort of the convenient box that they had me in the, the, the convenient label that they had for me was, was CFO. And, um, and, and so it was, 
it, I think it was harder for, for friends and, and for colleagues. By the same token, once they got over kind of the initial shock of, what, are you kidding? You, you just quit? You just stopped? Um, and they would, if they had a moment or took a moment to pause and think, they would say, you know, I could see you doing this, meaning executive coaching and leadership development. I could see you doing this. That makes sense. Um, so there was like an initial kind of, uh, and then a, a, a gradual, more natural acceptance. So did you find clients uh, who knew you before and knew of the other work besides the finance stuff that you were just talking about that you had done with your teams and the success that you had with that? Was that sort of an entree into some clients for you in the beginning? Uh, yes, yes. And it continues to be to this day, uh, several years after the fact. I mean, it, in my profession, it's not that common. My, when I say my profession, I mean my new profession. It's not that common, although it's not unheard of, but it's not that common for executive coaches and leadership consultants to have, uh, you know, significant business experience. Mm -hmm. so my calling card, what sets me apart, my value proposition is the fact that I have walked in my client's shoes. I, I know what they're going through. I understand the pressures of making the numbers um, month after month, quarter after quarter, and, and, and so forth. So I, I get that. And so when, when, when I get hired, um, it's, it's usually specifically because people have worked with me in the past. They know what I bring to the table. They know what my experience is. And they've experienced kind of this, this dual uh, set of talents that I have, which are, you know, deep roots in the business world, but also a, a very people-centric, uh, developmental kind of leader. Mm. So what are some of the leadership challenges that your clients face? And how have those changed in the past, I don't know, let's say two, three years, it seems like... Um, Societal attitudes are changing. There's a lot more um, focus on certain areas that maybe weren't focused on before. What are you seeing uh, from executives and others who are in a leadership position of what, what they're concerned about and what their challenges are? Yeah, and, and some of them are new and some of them not so new as, as you are alluding to. Um, there, there are certain patterns that I tend to see over and over. And, and when you take a moment to sort of think through it carefully, the patterns are not that surprising. So let, let me share with you a, a couple of them that I run into pretty frequently. Most business people, particularly those who have achieved, uh, you know, higher levels of success, uh, tend to be very driven, tend to be kind of type A personalities, high energy uh, very achievement-oriented, um, and so uh, that that mindset and that drive, particularly when it is uh, honed and uh, really cultivated, uh, if 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 executives are not careful, um, they can let that sort of uh, take over how they show up in the workplace. And what I mean by that is they can, they can end up 
being experienced by their colleagues as almost monomaniacally focused on achievement and results and, um, and, and really not paying very good attention to the human beings around them. A, a lot of people who might be listening to your podcast today won't be surprised by that because it sounds kind of stereotypical. And, and I suppose that it is, but it's, it's very prevalent. And uh, at, at the highest levels of business, um, you see it often. And so I will get hired when executives are flying up the corporate ladder. They're having a lot of success. And at the same time, they are feeling the pressure to show up as authentic leaders who can create followership and who can lead people with um, really with genuine, I will say love and, uh, and, and true interest and investment in the people that they're leading. And, and while they may understand that at the cognitive level, they haven't built it into their muscle fiber. And, uh, and so that's a big part of the work that I do, just helping people, helping leaders connect or reconnect with their self-awareness uh, and their interpersonal awareness so that they can be more effective with all the humans <laughs> that they're leading and, and who they're working with. Yeah, that's a, that's a wonderful thing to be doing. Let's take a real world example. Let's talk about Congress for a second. What kind of leadership would you, what kind of leadership advice would you give them if they called you? Wow. Oh my goodness. You know, I feel like, I feel like one of the greatest challenges that our country faces right now is just pure and simple uh, unity and solving for the greater good mm-hmm. and really seeking out the common ground that we all share as Americans, uh, as opposed to, uh, you know, getting so positional and digging in heels. And, um, and so really what that means is leadership that is led by humility. Mm. And I think that what we're witnessing is really the opposite of humility today in, uh, in, in the most uh, in the most prevalent uh, aspects of our political landscape, there is a terrible lack of humility, in my opinion. And humility is the key to uh, opening oneself up to new perspectives, new possibilities, different kinds of solutions, and uh, and leads to that common ground that I was mentioning just a moment ago. And what I, so what I, I guess what I would say to our, our, our political leaders today is um, embrace humility. Uh, embrace the things that you know, because we all know things. We're all expert in certain things, um, certain, um, you, you know, areas where we have developed expertise and that's nothing to be ashamed of. And at the same time, it's absolutely vital to recognize there's so many things that we don't know. 
And, and when, when we embrace that lack of certainty and embrace humility, then we're open to considering others' points of view and searching for the amalgamation of the good that, that undoubtedly can be shared across all kinds of uh, boundaries uh, that we've sort of artificially set up in our country today. Mm. Excellent advice. I hope they're listening. <laughs> Me too. I don't think I'm the lone voice on that one. No, yeah. you're not. I know. But somehow they're still not hearing it. <laughs> so you are a pretty outdoorsy kind of person. You talked about riding your bike for 100 miles a week and you're, you do backpacking and skiing and scuba diving. What is it about nature that speaks to you? Oh, oh, you just touched my heart, Kate. Thank you for asking that question. You know, I, I feel like one of the, and, and this isn't particularly novel, but, but it's still meaningful to me, so I'll share it. I, I feel like in our modern world, it's so easy to get fixated on, you know, these little screens that we all carry around uh, and the big screens and just the, the hustle and the hubbub of information that is avalanched upon us all of the time. And, you know, I, I practice meditation uh, daily. I, I spend time just stilling my mind. And when I do that is, is uh, an important way for me to reconnect with, with my, my best thinking, my best wisdom, and my best strength. And what I find, going back to your question about nature, is when I go into nature, it's like I don't, I don't, I, I don't have to meditate. I can if I want. But I don't have to meditate because nature itself provides stillness for me. My, my wife's a different story. She, she can't stand nature. But I love nature. When I'm in nature, it's like, the stillness kind of drenches me and I feel connected uh, to God. I feel connected to the universe. And uh, in, a, in a funny kind of way, even though I might be alone, I feel more connected to all of humanity and to the things that really matter. So, you know, if I'm sitting on a ski lift and just taking in uh, the, the cold air and the, and uh, the, the, the pine trees and the blue sky or, or the cloudy sky, whatever it might be. It just connects me at a visceral level to Mother Earth and, and this place that we all share together. What's the most beautiful or inspiring place in nature that you've ever been? Wow. That's a really tough one. I, and I'm fortunate because I've lived in five different countries and I've traveled to 30 some odd countries, spent about half my life outside the United States. So I'm fortunate that I've seen a, a lot of different uh, beautiful, beautiful landscapes. What's coming to my mind is um, the Andes in South America, the tops of the Andes, uh, where I've spent a, a fair amount of time hiking and, and, and skiing. And, uh, in a, in a strange kind of way, the, the tops of the Andes are very desolate. It's, they're dry. There's not much vegetation. So it's, it's, it's kind of barren. But, 
it has a stark beauty. It has a, a very um, kind of uh, tough beauty that that makes me remember that um, as a human, my time on this earth and my impact on it is um, is, is somewhat fleeting, and and um, and the earth itself is is constant and uh, strong. And um, I don't know, for some reason, that, that's a good reminder to me. And I, I feel the same way when I'm like in the deserts of southern Utah or Arizona or someplace like that. I'm headed there this spring uh, to Canyonlands National Park. It, it's the same kind of feeling that I get. Yes, nature can be very humbling. Yes, yes. <laughs> so we're at that point in the program where I have to ask you, what is one book or resource that changed your life that you would recommend to people? Oh yeah, well, uh, there there is a book that I read right about the time that I made my career change that had a tremendous impact on me. And and you know there are so many great books out there, and uh, your short list is probably not so short, and neither is mine. But but this book, particularly in light of the conversation that we're having today, was very very impactful for me. And it's called Working Identity. Uh, it's by a woman named Herminia Ibarra, and if I'm not mistaken, um, well, I, I believe it was published by Harvard Business Review Press. I, I think she's a professor at Oxford, or maybe she's a visiting professor there. Anyway, there will be listeners today who who know her and will be chagrined that I don't, I, I can't give a better bio of her. But in any case, um, the the book has something like 93 case studies, kind of Harvard case study style. And what she did was she studied success, successful, dramatic professional transitions and identified the patterns that help people be successful in the transition. And she has some really fun cases. I, I, I just love the book because it's all stories. It's, there's, there's nothing dry about it. It's not like an academic treatise or something like that. It's just all these fun stories. And the one that she leads off with is... Uh, a French psychiatrist who became uh, a monk mm. and uh, kind of his journey from being a psychiatrist to a monk. And at first blush, it's like, what? That's nuts. But then you hear his story, which is all about how he felt like he was treating kind of the upper crust of society and dealing with very, you know, first world kinds of problems. And he wanted to make more of an impact at the street level with people who were really suffering. And so he began volunteering at this monastery in Paris and discovered that not all monks have to be Asians. I'm just telling the story. And, um, and, you know, over time, he began doing more and more work at the monastery and less and less work in his psychiatry practice. And at a certain time, he just realized, oh, the monastery, that's my place. Yeah. Those are my people. That's my tribe. And, and he just slid into that new profession. And, um, you know, it, it, on the surface, if it had happened overnight, it'd be very dramatic. But the, the way that it unfolded is actually quite natural. And when I read that story, I thought, that's me. Mm-hmm. You know, that, that's, that's what I have been living for the past 15 years or so is this this exploration of the possibilities for me in, a, in my new profession 
making you know new friends, new contacts, enlarging my social circle, you know beyond just finance folks um, to to all kinds of people. And by the way, that's another pattern that she identifies is is changing your social circle. Mm-hmm. Uh, and anyway, I think she's got five or six patterns, but I love that book for anyone who's contemplating you know, a, a significant career shift, uh, I, I think it offers uh, a, a great roadmap. And one of the points that you just made with your story, as well as the story of the, the psychiatrist turned monk, is that it's a gradual thing. A lot yeah. of people think I have to make a decision and just jump. Right. And realistically, if you look at sort of the way your life is unfolding, you probably will see those patterns of, oh, that's what I've been doing this whole time. I just didn't realize it. Yes, yes. I, boy, I couldn't agree more with you on that point. And that was a, 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 you know, a light bulb that went on for me when I realized, oh, this isn't really an overnight shift that I'm making. This is something I've been working on for a number of years. I just hadn't embraced it as such. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, yeah, I, I, would, um, I would just lend my agreement to the point that you're making. And, you know, for those who are considering a big career change, you know, think about, have you already been exploring with it? And if you haven't, do some exploring or uh, experimenting. You know, in the, in the Herminia Ibarra book, she talks about that. Find ways to experiment with with the new career while you, while you still have the safety and security of your current career. That's right. total, it's totally doable, you know, either through volunteering in new ways on your current job or taking up volunteer or hobby opportunities outside of work hours. Yeah, so you know what you're doing before you burn the boats. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. So, John, how do you personally define success for yourself? What does your authentic first-class life look like? Yeah, you know, when I was, um, gosh, I think I was, I was 24 or 25, and I'm 55 now, so it's a, a few years have gone by. When I was 24 or 25, I heard a definition of success that I memorized because it just, it just struck me so powerfully. And in all of the years since then, I have not been able to come up with a better definition of success. So I'm going to tell you what it is. Uh, and it's not original to me. Um, and it, it goes like this. Success is the day-by-day realization of goals that are important to the individual. Mm-hmm. And, and I love that because... You know, it it pushes aside any notions of title or prestige or wealth or power or authority, and it just boils it down really to each person's values. Mm -hmm. What matters most to each individual, their values, living congruently with those values living a life that is full of integrity and honesty with those values, that's success. Mm-hmm. And whether, whether that leads you to the top of the Fortune 100 or uh, to you know, 
helping dig wells to provide water for villages in Africa. What, what resonates most with your values and, uh, and, and when you can live in a way where your actions are congruent with those values, I think that's success. I think that's success. I agree. Well said. So if people want to learn more about you and the work that you do, how can they do that? Oh, well, the best way to do it is just to go to my website, uh, rexleadership.com. And, um, or they can just um, shoot me an email at john at rexleadership.com. Happy to have the conversation. Awesome. Leadership consultant and executive coach, John Rex. Thank you so much for sharing your story with us today. Thank you, Kate. It's been a pleasure. First Class Life, Redefining Success with your host, Kate Fessler. We'll be right back. Back to the show. First Class Life, Redefining Success with your host, Kate Fessler. It seems to be just the human condition that it takes a near-death experience for us to find the courage to follow our dreams. Sadly, many people don't even do it then. Do you have a dream that you've put on the back burner? Don't wait for a crisis in your own life to bring it back to the forefront and make it a reality. As the saying goes, don't die with your music still inside of you. Like John, did you drift into something that people told you you were good at? that you didn't really mind doing, and opportunity kept moving you deeper into it? Did your career choose you, and are you wishing you'd made a different choice? If you have a nagging feeling that you want to do something differently, that there's more to life for you, that you've got some metaphorical music in you that really wants to come out, but you can't quite put your finger on it, let me help you. Send me an email, firstclasslife at outlook.com, and we'll set up a time to have a quick strategy session. There's no charge, and if I can't help you, I'll certainly do my best to direct you to what you need. Don't wait for a health or other crisis to resurrect your deferred dream. You deserve to live your life by your rules. I hope you'll join me next week when my guest will be Nicole Bandis. Could you survive the loss of a child? Tune in to hear Nicole's journey, including how she pulled her life together after a tragedy no parent should have to experience. Until then, cheers to your authentic first-class life. I'm Kate Fessler. Thanks for listening to First Class Life, Redefining Success. Thanks so much for listening to this episode of First Class Life, Redefining Success with Kate Fessler. If you enjoyed today's episode, please leave a review and subscribe. And for more great content and to stay up to date, visit firstclasslifesolutions.com, on Twitter at Kate Fessler, and on Facebook at First Class Life Solutions. We'll catch you next time. Thanks for listening. This is the EWN Podcast Network. I'm Sandra Yancey, CEO and founder of eWomen Network. We invite you to listen to all of our EWN Podcast hosts at EWNPodcastNetwork.com.